Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 2.4, Vicky, Her Special Mission. Last week, we set up this little mini-series of episodes. We started with a brief background history of Prussia and Germany, before introducing our main character, Vicky, and her young bae, Fritz. We then took them through their courtship, right up to the proposal and betrothal. If you haven't listened to it already, then I'd strongly recommend that you do. If, though, you're feeling a little rebellious, then by all means start in media res right here. Today we're going to look at the reaction to all of this in Britain and Prussia, then go on to look at the marriage ceremony itself and Vicky's move to her new home. From the feedback that I've been hearing from you so far, it seems that your favourite moment has been Victoria's telling off of Vicky in the last episode. I sort of accidentally end up putting on a sort of weird, posh, feminine accent for the Victoria bits. Can't promise that won't happen again. In all seriousness, though, getting that wonderful personal touch is such an amazing aspect of telling this story and I'll be weaving that sort of thing into the narrative going forward. Before we get going, though, I want to do a quick reviews plug. I absolutely love seeing iTunes reviews, and they really do help the show by showing other discerning history podcast lovers just what they're missing out on by not tuning in. So, please keep them coming wherever it is you get your podcasts. And so, without further ado, to all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. It had not escaped the notice of the press that plans were afoot for Britain's Princess Royal to marry a Prussian prince. While the royal family remained tight-lipped about the purpose of Fritz's visit, it was not hard for journalists to connect the dots, and the reaction was far from positive on either side of the North Sea. 
Remember, the Crimean War was still raging, and Britain and France had felt betrayed by Prussia, who had refused to join the conflict. Therefore, the prospect of the British Queen's eldest daughter marrying a future King of Prussia was repulsive to many. There were also concerns about the kind of kingdom that Prussia was, and whether a daughter of Britain should be marrying into such a place. The Times led the charge against the match, with a scathing op-ed which appeared on the 3rd of October 1855. Its basic argument was that marriage to a Prussian prince would inevitably bring the two nations closer together, and that this would, in turn, also bring Britain closer to Russia, the nation against which they were presently at war, and one that it describes as being, quote, barbarous and aggressive. Why, the article asks, should we, quote, place a daughter of England in a situation in which devotion to her husband must be treason to her country? Why distract her mind between wishes for the welfare of the family which she has left and that into which she has to be received? It then attacks Prussia as being one of many, quote, paltry German dynasties that were all bound to collapse under the weight of popular uprising due to their regimes not living up to their promises made during the 1848 revolutions. The article ends with the following, quote, Why link the fortunes of a daughter of England with all this uncertainty, all this danger? Why embark anew on the troubled sea of internal German politics? What is his Prussian majesty to us, or we to him? We never seem to agree to do the same thing at the same time. What sympathy can exist between a court supported like ours on the basis of popular freedom and national respect, and a camarilla just engaged in trampling out the last embers of popular government? For our part, we wish for the daughters of our royal house some better fate than union with a dynasty, which knows neither what is due to its own dignity, to the rights of the people over which it presides, nor to the place it occupies in the great European confederacy. And we regard it as a poor sequel to the efforts which have broken the strength of Russia, that we should ally ourselves with princes who are only too happy to be ranked among her pensioners and supporters. The people of England, at all events, have no wish to improve their acquaintance with any prince of the House of Hohenzollern. This op-ed, and other news coverage like it, served not only to whip up anti-Prussian suspicion and hostility, endangering the popularity of the royal family, but also stir up significant resentment in Prussia, who viewed this as a grave insult. The great German statesman and conservative Otto von Bismarck, who at the time was the Prussian delegate to the German Diet in Frankfurt, was a great supporter of his nation looking east rather than west, and was thus unsurprised by this naked hostility. He wrote to a Prussian general that, quote, You ask me in your letter what I think of the English marriage. I must separate the two words to give you my opinion. The English in it does not please me. The marriage may be quite good, for the princess has the reputation of a lady of brain and heart. If the princess can leave the Englishwoman at home and become a Prussian, then she may be a blessing to the country. If our future queen on the Prussian throne remains the least bit English, then I see our court surrounded by English influence. The wife of the British ambassador to Berlin, who clearly having a finger on the Prussian pulse, wrote the following to the Queen. Quote, I fear Her Royal Highness's position here will be more difficult than perhaps Your Majesty is fully aware of. Without living here and seeing the curious anomalous state of this country and the violence and bitterness of party spirits, 
it is almost impossible to value the true state of affairs at this court and the unhappy divisions and jealousies which exist in the royal family itself. The news that a marriage was forthcoming was a great victory for Prussian liberals, who saw this as a potential sign that their nation was finally moving in the right direction. For men like Bismarck, it was seen as a harbinger of the Anglicisation of Prussia and a dilution of the very values that had made it great. Yet, the most important Prussian conservative at the time did welcome the match. King Friedrich Wilhelm defended it without hesitation. It was with all this turmoil going on that Vicky was confirmed in February 1856. With much pomp and circumstance, she was led into St George's Chapel at Windsor Castle by her father, with much of her extended family following behind. These occasions were usually very private, but given Vicky's status and recent press, it was considered prudent to give her a far grander ceremony than was normal. It didn't go over particularly well with many in attendance. Princess Mary of Cambridge wrote that, quote, The ceremony was very short, the service for the day being omitted, and not solemn enough for my feeling, though the anthems were fine and well chosen. Lord Granville, a senior liberal politician, didn't have a great time either. Quote, the Princess Royal went through her part well. The Princess Alice cried violently. The Archbishop read what seemed like a dull address. Luckily, it was inaudible. The Bishop of Oxford wrote out a short prayer with conscious superiority. This ceremony marked Vicky's formal emergence into society, meaning they could now announce the betrothal. This was, of course, not news to anyone, as it had leaked a few months earlier. But now that things were all official... Vicky could bask in the glory of being a fiancé betrothed to a man she loved. It was her entry into the spotlight, and once under its rays, she would find it very hard to escape. The engagement was to last two years, as Fritz had promised to wait until Vicky turned 17 before the marriage would take place. This meant that the couple had ample time to get to know each other before getting married, a rare luxury for people of their station. Fritz came over to the UK regularly, but was rather frustrated by his future mother-in-law, who insisted on chaperoning the two constantly, guarding her daughter's virtue very tightly indeed. This became rather tiresome, even for the Queen, who wrote in a letter that Fritz was, quote, so much in love that, even if he is out driving and walking with her, he is not satisfied, and says that he has not seen her unless he can have her for an hour to himself. She wondered why Fritz should care so much, expressing surprise that Vicky, quote, could arouse such sexual feelings. She really could be remarkably cutting and cruel, could Victoria. Eventually, a compromise was reached, where Victoria delegated her chaperoning responsibilities to her son Bertie, who, characteristically, took a rather laissez-faire attitude, leaving them in the next room to their own devices, just keeping the door ajar in case his mother should turn up unannounced. Vicky and Fritz made numerous public appearances together on his visits to Britain. On one trip, they went to Madame Tussauds, where they inspected their newly made wax likenesses and posed for photographs next to it. They also went to the theatre together and saw concerts, and wherever they went, they drew big crowds. Royal daughters were, of course, pretty much brought up from birth to become the wives of powerful sovereigns. But now that that had become a reality for Vicky, or at least very soon would be, it was time for her education to become a little more focused. She already, of course, knew how to speak German and had been taught how to conduct herself as a wife and lady of the court, but her father Albert had loftier plans for her. 
She was to be his agent, his plant in the Prussian court. He was laying the groundwork for the next stage of his great plan. For one hour every evening, Albert instructs his daughter on everything from Prussian and German history to political and legal theory. He showed her diplomatic letters from across Europe, and together they discussed the state of the continent and the direction in which they hoped it would travel. Most of all, though, he laid out his vision for how he wanted German unification under a liberal Prussia to progress. Prussia, he told her, would unshackle itself from Russia and go forth confidently on its own. It should lead the other German states into a voluntary union, leaving behind Austria and join together with the liberal Western powers of the UK and France. His daughter lapped this all up, eagerly learning from the father that she idolised and excited for the part that she was destined to play in his plan. Albert and his friend von Stockmar referred to this as Vicky's, quote, special mission, and she was as well prepared for it as any princess could ever be. But, amongst all this planning, Albert seems to have neglected to place enough concern on the severe danger in which he was placing his beloved daughter. He was sending a young, vibrant woman, still a girl really, into a foreign court with foreign customs and values, with the express mission to change it. It was hardly a secret that that was her purpose. It's no wonder that the Prussians looked on her with great suspicion. For her part, Queen Victoria was sorting out the financials. Despite his position as second in line to the throne, Fritz was not a rich man at all. She asked Parliament to provide a dowry for Vicky that was, quote, suitable to the dignity of the crown and the honour of the country. She pitched for the enormous sum of £80,000 plus £10,000 a year, but sold for 40000 and 8000 a year. The Prussians were far more stingy with Fritz, offering him far less than other Prussian princes had been given, annoying Victoria as she felt they were taking unfair advantage of the fact that Britain was a wealthy nation. On a more personal level, Victoria also did the thing that all mothers seem to do when their children go away to stay with strangers, and that is get super concerned with their appearance. Even more so with royals as with normal people, appearances mattered. They were the living embodiment of their nation, and couldn't just show up wearing whatever. You know when you watch super rich people packing for their one-week holiday and they end up taking like four suitcases each? Well, check this out. Victoria arranged for her daughter to bring 12 evening gowns, 6 ball gowns, 3 court dresses, 15 other kinds of dress, sufficient velvet, silk and other materials to make 40 other kinds of dress. Underneath all that, she had 144 pairs of drawers and the same of shifts and handkerchiefs. On top of that, she had 100 petticoats, 50 dressing gowns, and let's not get into all the shoes, stockings, shawls, bennets, hats and other sorted paraphernalia. Then there was the furniture, the tapestries and paintings, the rugs and wallpapers. It was a massive heap of stuff that was all prepared for shipment over to Prussia. Packing light, Vicky was not. While all this was going on, preparations were being made and negotiations held for the wedding itself. The first question, the when, was answered very quickly, the 25th of January, 1858. The next question, the where was far less easily solved. The Prussians wanted to be held in Berlin, but this was utterly unacceptable to Victoria. Quote, Whatever may be the usual practices of Prussian princes, she remarked, it is not every day that one marries the eldest daughter of the Queen of England. 
The question, therefore, must be considered settled and closed. Safe to say, Victoria won that round. The next argument was over the composition of their household. Fritz's mother and grandmother submitted a list of names for the women who to eat Vicky's future ladies, and they were, almost without exception, boring, middle-aged Germans. Albert requested that a few British girls around Vicky's age be included in the mix, to make the whole thing a little less daunting, but the Prussians weren't keen. Eventually, a sort of compromise was reached, whereby a few younger German ladies were thrown in. The Prussians definitely won that round. These and other negotiations were often tetchy in big royal weddings, but their fraught nature here does demonstrate the fact that, while this match was becoming a little more popular in Britain, it was viewed with so much suspicion in Berlin. One could argue that the stage was set for failure right from the off. But, eventually, all of these petty disagreements were ironed out, and the stage was set for the royal wedding, the biggest such occasion since the marriage of Victoria and Albert seven years previously. It would be a bittersweet moment for Victoria. She was immensely proud of Vicky and happy that her husband's plan was being put into action. But she also felt the sting of losing her eldest child to a foreign court. She had a lot of children, and Vicky was the first to fly the coop. It was always going to be hard, and that's before you consider how much harder it was to keep in touch with loved ones abroad before the inventions of the telephone and Skype. Just before leaving Windsor for London, Victoria inspected the rooms that would be used by her daughter as her honeymoon suite. Quote, It gave me quite a pang looking at the rooms. I do so feel for my poor child. Before long, Germans began flooding into London, along with an astonishing smorgasbord of other royals from across Europe. This was a state occasion like no other. The daughter of the British Empire marrying the future King of Prussia. Everyone was there. No one wanted to miss this. Fritz was one of the last to arrive, turning up two days before the ceremony. On his first evening, he went with the rest of the royal family to a performance of Macbeth at Her Majesty's Theatre, the building in the West End that now plays host to the Phantom of the Opera. And the final curtain, the audience bayed for a clear sight of the happy couple. Acquiescing to popular demand, the Queen accompanied Vicky and Fritz to the front of the box, producing a deafening cheer from the crowd. The chosen venue for the wedding was not Westminster Abbey, as you might imagine. While in the Middle Ages and the 20th century, it was, slash is, considered the venue of choice for royal nuptials, it had fallen completely out of fashion and had not played host to such an occasion since 1486. Instead, the Chapel Royal at St James's Palace was tapped, the same venue that had played host to Queen Victoria's marriage to Albert. The eve of the wedding saw many gifts bestowed on the royal couple. Fritz was promoted to being a major general of the Prussian 1st Infantry Regiment of Guards and given the Swiss uniform to boot to wear on his big day. He also presented his bride-to-be with a diamond necklace, but then his parents rather outdid him with a string of 36 enormous pearls valued at around £5,000, around £600,000 or US dollars in today's money. For their part, Victoria and Albert gave three great silver candelabra as gift to Fritz. That was not all. Various other guests bestowed a mountain of jewellery, clothing and other gifts on Vicky and Fritz. All, it seems, attempted to outdo each other to project their own power and wealth. When the big day came, it seems that the mother of the bride was far more nervous than Vicky was. 
Quote, it is like taking a poor lamb to be sacrificed, she said tearfully to Albert. But later, she wrote in her journal, quote, Vicky came in to see me looking composed. This relieved me greatly. The bride, it seems, was a picture of calm the whole day. Staggering, really, when one considers just what a life-changing occasion it was. The day itself began like any other wedding, with mother and daughter getting their hair and makeup done together. Vicky's dress was a beaut. A gown of white silk moiré over a lace petticoat which had embroideries featuring the flowers of the three kingdoms that made up the UK, the rose, the thistle and the shamrock. On the flounces, which apparently are a thing, there were wreaths of orange and myrtle, the latter being the bridal flower of Germany, meaning that her dress was paying tribute to her home nation and the one into which she was marrying. If you'd like to see a picture of it, then amazingly you can, because a process existed at the time called, and forgive me if I get this wrong, daguerreotyping, a kind of early photography, which required all parties within the image to stay completely still for many minutes. It features Vicky and her parents, but unfortunately the nervous Queen Victoria couldn't stay put, meaning that she comes out rather blurry. I've put the image in the show notes if you're interested. The crowds thronging the streets on a gorgeous winter's morning on the 25th of January 1858 were granted a magnificent spectacle. They watched and cheered as around 18 carriages of outriders and hundreds of infantrymen and cavalrymen processed down the mall to the palace. Once all the guests had been seated, Fritz walked down the aisle, bowed to his mother and soon-to-be mother-in-law, and then kneeled to pray at the altar. One journalist recording the event stated that he, quote, bore himself manfully on an occasion where few men appear to much advantage. Then came the bride. Victoria recorded in her journal, quote, Our darling flower, looking very touching and lovely, with such an innocent, confident and serious expression on her dear face. She walked between her beloved father and dear Uncle Leopold, who had been present at both her christening and confirmation. My last fear of being overcome vanished when I saw Vicky's calm and composed manner. It looked beautiful seeing her kneeling beside Fritz. Their hands joined, her long train borne by the eight young ladies. After curtsying to Victoria and her future in-laws, she knelt alongside Fritz. Like a lot of royal weddings, though, things didn't go entirely to plan. The Archbishop was rather rattled by how calm the bride and groom were, so much so that he accidentally skipped large sections of the service. Otherwise, though, it all went well. After the vows had been made, they processed out to Mendelssohn's wedding march, the first time that it had been played ever at a royal wedding. They then returned to Buckingham Palace, where they performed the obligatory balcony scene, waving to the cheering crowds. I won't go into great detail on the wedding breakfast and reception, as I think we do need to move on, but I must quickly describe the cake to you. It was monumental in every sense of the word. Over six feet tall and in three tiers, it was festooned with pearls, jasmine, orange blossom and silver leaf garlands. On top sat a great dome resting on columns. Underneath 
lay an altar containing representations of Vicky and Fritz. Round it were busts in cake form of their parents. The second tier had statues of virtues, such as wisdom and innocence, and the bottom layer was decorated in the arms of Britain and Prussia. Rather puts my wedding cake to shame. The following morning, just before going out for a walk and some ice skating with Fritz, Vicky found a letter from her mother had just been delivered, in which she gave her daughter some motherly advice for her life ahead. Marriage was, she wrote, quote, a very solemn act, the most important and solemn in everyone's life, but much more so in a woman's than a man's. I have ever looked on the blessed day which united me to your beloved and perfect papa as the cause of my own happiness, a happiness few, if any, enjoy. You also have the blessing of a dear, kind and excellent husband. Let it be your study and object to be of use to him. You can never give your parents more happiness and comfort than when they know and see that you are a truly devoted, loving and useful wife. Vicky and Fritz were extraordinarily lucky at this moment at any rate. Unlike most royal spouses, they were truly in love and cared deeply for each other's well-being. They were personally, sexually and temperamentally compatible and made for an incredibly cute couple. But these blissful, joyful days were tinged with sadness as the day was approaching where Vicky would depart for her new Prussian home. She spent her last day in Britain talking to her mother and playing with her nine-month-old sister Beatrice, taking in what were, in effect, her final days of childhood. On the 2nd of February, a cloudy, freezing day, Vicky made ready to leave. It was agony for Victoria. Quote, got up with a heavy heart and went over for the last time to dear Vicky's room to fetch her for breakfast. Struggled with all my might against my sad feelings. We went into the audience room where Mama and all the children were assembled, and here poor Vicky's and Alice's, as well as others' tears, began to flow fast. Still I struggled, but as I came to the staircase my breaking heart gave way. I went down first, followed by Vicky and Fritz. The hall was filled with all our people and theirs, and amongst the many servants there I don't think there was a dry eye. Poor dear child, she kissed first one, then the other, shaking hands with many. I clasped her in my arms, not knowing what to say, and kissed good Fritz, pressing his hand again and again. He was quite unable to speak for emotion. Again at the door of the carriage I embraced them both. What a dreadful moment, what a real heartache to think of our dearest child being gone and not knowing how long it may be before we see her again. Victoria stayed behind at the palace, leaving Albert and her sons Bertie and Affie to see Vicky off onto the royal yacht Victoria and Albert at Gravesend in Kent. Once she boarded the vessel, she and her father had a few private moments in her cabin. Vicky was full of emotion and sobbed into her father's chest. Quote, My heart was very full when yesterday you leaned your forehead into my breast to give free vent to your tears, wrote Albert in an uncharacteristically tender letter to Vicky the next day. I am not of a demonstrative nature, and therefore you can hardly know how dear you have always been to me, and what a void you have left behind in my heart. And with that, Vicky, along with her husband and new household, set sail for Prussia. She was departing her home nation, a people that loved her and a family that adored her. She would find the Prussian court a somewhat harder place to conquer. The crossing was stormy and miserable, 
and husband and wife would have been delighted when they alighted at the port of Antwerp and began their triumphant journey through northern Europe. Everywhere they went, they were greeted with cheers, celebrations and receptions, starting with Brussels, then moving on into the German states, crossing the border at Hanover, where they were rather rudely entertained by her cousin Ernest Augustus, and then moving on through Magdeburg and Württemberg. At that latter city, they were welcomed by a German field marshal so old that he was actually a veteran of the Napoleonic Wars. When he boarded the royal train, the locomotive set off with such a jolt that the army guy fell into an apple tart, causing much mirth amongst everyone, including the field marshal. After an exhausting journey of many days, Vicky and Fritz entered Berlin through the Brandenburg Gate on the 8th of February in the Prussian stagecoach, amid much celebration, and met the royal family at Bellevue Palace. She seemingly had not dressed for the frigid Prussian weather, as the Russian queen inquired worriedly if she was not frozen with cold. In an answer typical of Vicky, she replied, quote, Completely, except my heart, which is warm. Berlin is today one of Europe's great cities, a centre of culture and the arts, whose long and troubled history makes it a mecca for millions of visitors. Back in the mid-19th century, however, it was dreary, cold and militarised. Of the 400,000 inhabitants, fully 20% were soldiers. In the 1853 edition of John Murray's famous guidebook, A Handbook for Travellers on the Continent, the author, while acknowledging the city as being one of Europe's finest cities, described it thusly. Quote, the city is situated in the midst of a dreary plain of sand destitute of either beauty or fertility. The streets are necessarily broad and therefore generally appear empty. The flatness of the ground and the sandy soil produce inconveniences which the stranger will not be long in detecting. There is so much declivity in the surface that the water in the drains, instead of running off, stops and stagnates in the streets. In the summer season, the heat of the sun reflected by the sand becomes intolerable, and the noxious odours in the streets are very unwholesome as well as unpleasant. The mere passing traveller in search of amusement will exhaust the sights of Berlin perhaps in a fortnight, and afterwards find it tedious without the society of friends. Their initial official residence was the Berlin Palace, the traditional home of the rulers of Prussia, but was now only really used for state occasions as the apartments were rather dilapidated. The state apartments where Vicky and Fritz lived had not been touched since the death of King Friedrich Wilhelm III nearly 15 years previously, and it showed. For one use the creature comforts and familiar surroundings of Buckingham Palace and Windsor Castle, this was a terribly difficult transition for Vicky. She had no cupboards in which to hang her clothes, no bath, no toilets. The palace was dirty and dusty, it was a maze of dark corridors and cavernous rooms. The fireplaces were open to the elements, meaning that icy winter gusts penetrated deep into the palace's depths. The paintings were blackened by smoke, the carpets threadbare. It was cold and dank, meaning that she immediately caught a terrible cold. This was not a residence or a welcome fit for a future Queen of Prussia. Now I'm going to start the next episode with a brief summary of all the key players in the Prussian royal family and government, so I won't go into detail right now about how each of them welcomed Vicky, but suffice it to say that she wasn't embraced with open arms, and this was very apparent very early on. Back in England, the royal family were rather misled by Fritz, 
who wrote back to London, quote, The whole royal family is enchanted by my wife. Victoria wrote to her daughter, quote, Everyone says how well you behave. How thankful and happy do we feel? Prince Albert, though, was rather more realistic, and sent this piece of advice to her shortly after she had taken up residence in Berlin. Quote, this kindly and confident welcome of a whole nation to a total stranger must have aroused and strengthened your efforts to prove yourself worthy of such feelings. But just because they were delighted and enthusiastic, the public were now turned to sharp criticism and pull you to pieces. The family who were courteous to the stranger may now be inclined to put you back to what they consider your proper place and to resume theirs. But even this must not surprise you. Your place is your husband's wife, your mother's daughter. You must not expect anything else, but you must not give up anything which you owe to your husband or your mother. I'd like to remind you that Vicky is still a teenage girl here, with little to no experience of what life was like outside the loving embrace of her family. Albert has a reputation of being one of royal history's great fathers, but I think he has a lot to answer for here. He has thrown her into the lion's den and tasked her with his special mission, which may as well have been labelled Mission Impossible. In this letter, he instructs her to be both the perfect Prussian wife and a loyal daughter to the British Queen. And yet these goals were always going to be incompatible. He knew Prussia, he knew what kind of a place it was and how difficult it was going to be to change its course. He had given Vicky what training he could to achieve his goal, but that was never going to be enough without a tremendous slice of luck and no bit of genius from his daughter. She had been the second lady of the British Empire. She had been a favourite child of her parents and a kind of second mother to many of her siblings. She was born into a family that encouraged her intellectual spirit and conscientious personality, one that wanted her to be more than just arm candy and a bearer of babies. Yet, the family she was marrying into and the court that she was about to become resident in had very different values. Now you may notice that we have, so far, moved rather slowly through Vicky's story. Indeed, one of my main sources of research for this series is a near 700-page biography of her, and in two episodes we barely hit 100 pages. But we're going to be picking up the pace a little bit from now on, never fear. Next time, as I've already said, we will start with an overview of the Prussian court, and how they initially treated the young English princess that had been thrust into their midst. We will then look at Vicky's time just as a mere princess of Prussia, taking us through the birth of her first couple of children and up to the crucial year of 1861, which saw the death of the Prussian king, her raising to the rank of crown princess, and the greatest tragedy of her life, the death of her beloved father, Albert. Albert. 